Hello, I'm Jason Herderich, and I'm the host of Discomfort Zone, a new podcast on the Invisible Not Broken Network. I'm excited to be joining Monica and Eva here. I'm going to be releasing some of my early episodes over the next few weeks, so I hope you enjoy, and you can find Discomfort Zone wherever you listen to podcasts or on invisiblenotbroken.com. Uh, before we get started on the interview, can I get you anything? Milk, water, applesauce? You're good? Okay. So I believe it was the second time we met that you peed in my bed. Do you have anything to say for yourself? <laughs> so you're going to play dumb. Well, that's not going to work. You and I know exactly what happened. Just own up to it and we can move on. Daddy. Luke, we don't even own a dog. <laughs> well, that's not very nice. Do you have any I any idea how how hard it is to remove pea stains from cotton? Wow. Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> so you have nothing to say. All done? I don't know why I even waste my time with you. Family relationships can be complicated. There's a lot of love, but sometimes you resent each other. In Luke's case, it's tough to hold a grudge against someone that cute. Say hi! What does the turtle say? What does the dinosaur say? One of the few positives that has come out of my illness is that it has brought my family closer together. My sister Lisa and I especially. We often butted heads in childhood. Those days are behind us, besides a minor disagreement in episode two. I'm Jason Herderick, and this is Discomfort Zone. In this episode, Lisa and I sit down for a chat about her role as a supportive sister, the impact my illness has had on her, and much more. Lisa and I pick up our conversation right after she listened to episode one, Struggling to Stay Afloat. If you haven't heard that episode yet, Give it a listen before continuing this one. So, what did you think of the episode? Uh, I thought it was very well done. I thought it was very uh, emotional and very raw, um, very real. I really, I really enjoyed hearing it. I think that like the voice acting in it was really good, except for the paramedic. I, f I feel like the, the person who just did that voice just kind of really sucked. Sir, are you okay? Do you need assistance? I felt like she was very realistic and I would definitely hire her for like a, a huge, like a big screen production as well. I, I'm trying to find out who she is, but she did a really good job. Wait, what? What do you mean? No. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you can't have me say that line. I, I don't know, but... I d disagree with you on that, and I don't think that I'll ever be bringing her back onto the podcast. Okay, well, we uh, will have to agree to disagree. I guess so. Yeah. Um, in general, how did my condition impact you when I was at my worst? Um, 
I actually felt guilty for going to work some days because I knew you were sick and I like felt almost like I needed to be like at home with you guys, like trying to help everyone. But I don't know. I just, I felt like you and I were texting back and forth a lot and I would always try to check in with you like almost every day. I don't know. I just, I felt like I needed to, like part of my job as your sister was to touch base with you every day and just remind you that we all loved you and that we, um, we cared about you. And I think you guys did an incredible job of that, honestly. Maybe it didn't seem like much for you guys at the time. Like I would give you, I would call you many evenings during the week when I was just right before bed, I'd be feeling my worst pain and everything. The side effects of the medication I'd be on would be kicking in and I would just feel like total crap. And yeah, I would just call you and I'd kind of be breaking down, but even if I left her phone call and I was still like my voice, uh, it's the right way to explain this. Even if I wasn't fully calmed down, just having somebody to listen to me without telling me like, just having somebody to, to listen to me was incredibly helpful. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, I think that's what you needed for a big part of it. Cause I think all of us felt very helpless and I think mom and dad especially felt helpless and their own, their only way of feeling like they could help you was basically through instrumental needs. So providing you with shelter, providing you with uh, means of comfort and food, essentially. That was how they were able to, to help. To expand on what Lisa was saying, my mom and dad did everything they could to support me. However, they understandably couldn't shoulder all of my sadness and grief. They were trapped in this bleak reality with me day after day. Lisa had more space from the situation although it undoubtedly affected her too. I think from like an emotional standpoint, a lot of us had kind of run out of options. Like there was no, there was no way of kind of telling you, you just have to tough it out and to like keep kind of like pushing, keep pushing forward and like keep going on. It was kind of hard to like get you to do more than you were do already doing on a daily basis. I remember for like one example was, when you were just walking upstairs and you wouldn't even come downstairs for a little while. And the thought of like trying to encourage you to go outside would not have even happened. So I think the main thing was just even to encourage you to like maintain your, your current level of function and to prevent any future like further deterioration. I think that was a big part of it. Definitely. From an emotional standpoint, I think something that you really excelled at was just adding a little bit of humor to my life. So I'm not really sure if you were trying to be helpful or if you were just trying to be a jerk, but you'd like come in and you'd pull off my socks and you'd blow in my ears. And just just the image of you doing that to me when I don't have the energy to retaliate or anything, like, yeah, <laughs> were you trying to help me out there or were you just trying to be mean? So Jason, you and I always play this game called Touched You Last. And I actually saw you being sick as an opportunity to win, win, win a small victory. Can you so kind the, of explain what the game is? So the touch you last, it's pretty self-explanatory, but basically whenever Jason, whenever you and I are saying goodbye to each other, uh, whoever touches the other person last wins. So most families, their goodbyes revolve around hugging one another or shaking hands. Jason, you and I usually, uh, it's almost like a game of tag and whoever touches the other person last is victorious. So I saw you being sick 
in as a very kind of twisted opportunity for me to win uh, a little something of my own every time I saw you. So that's why I blew in your ear or pulled off your sock because I knew you weren't going to be able to fight back and I knew I would win. But now how does it feel to lose a, the touch to you last game every single time we play now, now that I'm feeling a bit better? So I have kept a tally of how many times I touched you last <laughs> when you were sick. Score? So you have a lot. I'm going to let you win a fair number. Um, I'm still ahead. I'm trying to be nice and let you catch up a little bit. <laughs> You're trying to be. Now, getting back to when I was really at my worst, and for me, I was just terrified that this downward spiral that I was in was just going to continue. It was out of control. My emotional state was not steady. I was in a constant state of fight or flight. And during several of the conversations that I'd have with you, I would talk to you about my suicidal ideation. I'd say like, you know, I don't know how much longer I can do this for you. Uh, sorry, I don't know how much longer I can do this for. And really just being running out of steam with everything. What was that like for you? And like, were you afraid that you were going to lose me? Uh, that was terrifying for me and for all of us. Uh, I think at some point we we were seriously concerned about your safety and that's why we brought you to uh, the emergency room and they sent us to a mental health hospital um, emergency room after we had waited for a little while and that's why that's why we brought you there because we we were like seriously concerned that you were going to attempt suicide and that's why we kind of even kept all your medication separate and, and away from you and mom would basically dispense you your like daily dosage of pills um, only one day at a time. And uh, at some point she basically uh, decided that it was too risky to keep all those medications in your room. Just as an aside, I never attempted suicide. And honestly, I wanted to live, but I felt like I was no longer living. I was existing in a constant state of agonizing pain. And I was scared that my pain would push me over the edge where I'd lose my sense of volition and do something I'd regret. But yeah, it was, it was terrifying. And again, we all felt super helpless and it, it just, it, there was no other worse feeling that I can imagine or that I've gone through, I think, than seeing a loved one who's like that mentally, that mentally ill, basically. And you're not able to do anything except like tell them that you love them and that you're there for them and try to support them and give them things to, to think about um, and to realize that they do have value in your life and in other people's life. It's, that was, having the support of family and friends for me really meant everything because really the way I felt at the time was that I was draining the energy out of mom and dad. I could see the effect that that my condition had on them and i was basically boxed so just for my listeners just for the listeners to have an idea i was basically boxed away in my room for the majority of a year and a half straight i just felt so disconnected from anything productive that i just it was really like what is the purpose for me to be here but having the support of family and friends just really meant everything you know at that time i was questioning like yeah just what is my value in the world but when i had all those family and friends that were constantly coming and spending time with me despite my state 
that really just was like, wow, I guess I am worth something. Mm -hmm. And Jason, you had a, you have a ton of friends who continue to see you from both high school and from university all the way, like all the way through your illness. Um, and I think that played a huge role, uh, in keeping your spirits somewhat up. And I think having that tight knit circle of friends prevented you from going down that pathway of actually following through on any suicidal ideation. And I think had you not had those friends, I don't know. I don't even want to think about how things could have turned out. I am extremely grateful for the group of friends who have stuck by me throughout my illness. And so are my parents. A lot, a lot of it credit has to be given to this wonderful group of friends that you have that have supported you through all this. Yeah, you should be very happy to have a group of friends like that. They would come over and read me jokes off of their phones, which I would memorize and then recycle to family members. I think one of your, one of your um, qualities that I appreciate the most is your sense of humor. And I remember you could be crying your eyes at one moment and you're biting onto a towel or a face cloth just because you're in so much pain with tears streaming down your cheeks. And the next minute you would kind of think about a funny joke or a pun that you had read online and you would be basically telling uh, me one-liners. And I found that that was, uh, that, that seemed to even bring your own spirits up too. And you felt accomplished when you were able to make other people laugh. And I think that probably helped as well. Whenever I had visitors, the mood was somber. We were all collectively grieving the life that I had lost. Humor eased the tension. I found that even one small joke could shift the mood of the entire visit. I think that that kind of added to it because nobody was expecting me to tell a joke. So when I would tell them, it would catch people off guard. Uh, I remember I had a friend who was in the room. Uh, yeah, her name was Molly, but... She was just asking me about my day and I could only whisper at the time. So I was just like, oh, it was really shitty. I saw a nurse. She drew blood for me. She really got under my skin. And Molly just looked at me like really concerned. And she's like, oh, no, like, what, what did she do? And I was just like, well, how else was she supposed to get the blood for me? <laughs> so just shit like that would just really catch people off guard anyway so that was just kind of a an example but yeah, yeah i think everyone appreciated your one-liners <laughs> thank you i mean some of them were pretty shitty but they're good do you have any advice for other families that are going through similar crises that we were in uh i would say just keep reminding your family member how much you love them every single day and don't let them forget that. And our family was not a super affectionate or loving family growing up. Like we, we all loved each other, but that wasn't something that we necessarily communicated all the time. And I think Jason, you being sick brought that out a lot more in us. And I feel even like we are closer as a family now and we're definitely more affectionate, but I think that's super important to make sure that the person who's sick knows that their family does love them and does care about them and that they just feel that unconditional love. And I think just really keeping a very open mind and finding the right healthcare team to support you and not jumping around from necessarily doctor to doctor, to doctor, to doctor, find somebody who has experience dealing with that condition, uh, find whoever the top of the top of the field is 
and for you, you found that at a rehab hospital in Toronto. And I felt like your interaction with that doctor, a physiatrist, was really the turning point in your health. And I feel like the message that he conveyed to you uh, was the first positive message that you received from a healthcare professional in probably five years. And I think that made a huge difference. So the way in which you say something to uh, a patient, family member, a friend, uh, it's not just what you're saying, but it's also how you say it. And coming from a doctor, a position of authority, uh, those people in particular have a lot of power to alter the outcomes um, of the patients who really need that help. Definitely. And just something that I would add on to the end of that, even if you are showing affection towards that person who is suffering, even if they don't seem to be responding to it, like, don't take that as a sign that you should stop. Yeah. Um, anyways, sense. Carl and Claire are here. So I think that this is the end of the interview. Yeah. It's actually perfect timing because we basically just finished. Okay. But yeah, thank you for coming on, Lisa. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Wait, what? Touched you last. Wait, what? What? Wait, what? Wait, what? A special thanks to Lisa for coming on today's show. You can find out more about Lisa and her life as a triathlete and physiotherapist at lisapersner.com. Link to her website is in the description below. In my next episode, I'll be going back to the start, the injury that led to the development of my chronic pain. If you are feeling depressed or you'd just like to talk to someone, you can call the National Suicide Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. I've posted this information in the show notes at discomfort.fm. This show is produced by myself, Jason Herderick, audio engineering by Justin Meriden. Dan Samosh is our external consultant. If you like the show, I'd love to hear from you. My handle on social media is DZone Podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listened to the show. Until next time, take care. <laughs>